uh, the new footage was um, completely different to the hallway footage. For, for one, it was significantly more detailed, so it was less ambiguous, and uh, it was impossible to dismiss it as a, you know, a coincidence of shadow play and digital noise. And there was something inexplicable in our house that was beyond doubt. I was concerned. This was pretty unfamiliar territory for me. I've never seen a ghost before. You are listening to March Mad Men, the show with the mission to pour through all the haunted house movies we could get our hands on, narrow the field to 32 films, then match them up two by two until we determine what is the greatest of them all. Well, we are in the midst of the final four now, or the fearsome four, if you prefer, and this quartet of films is getting the full treatment. A thorough but loving autopsy for all of them. And it's fair to say these autopsies are especially loving because these are four killer films. And that's fitting because many people remember tonight's movie as a film to die for. It's the 2008 psychological chiller Lake Mungo. I'm John Evans, and with me this evening is the king of the Mungo heads, Emmy-nominated TV producer, Rich Eckersley, and also in Mungo, the house. Mungo. <laughs> also in the house, of course, is the writer of Devil's Pass, Mister Bourbon Barrel Quad himself, Vic Wheat. Well, guys, it's a blustery evening in Southern California. Let's crack a beer and talk about a horror movie. I am drinking the uh, the old podcast classic. Sculpin IPA. Uh, Vic, what do you have going on tonight? I have a, uh, I, I once again foolishly opened it in advance. I'm trying to get everything in order. And, uh, uh, but I'm doing the New Belgium uh, Triple, which is a, uh, a fine, widely available beer. So nothing quite so fancy tonight. All right. And Rich, how about yourself? Um, well, I'm currently broadcasting uh, not from Southern California, but for Northern California. I'm on an old walnut farm nestled in between a pack of alpacas and some wild sheep. And uh, <laughs> getting my hands on beer around here isn't that easy. I could drive 20 minutes to the local Walmart, but uh, I haven't been out to get. So I brought a couple with me from L.A. Maybe I'll crack them later. Uh, maybe a pizza port from your local Trader Joe's back in the old I neighborhood? <laughs> I do have a can of pizza port in my refrigerator <laughs> that I imported from Los Angeles. So... Uh, maybe just because it's the podcast, I will sneak that in later. I think you have to, man. It's a tradition. All right. Well, we all have something to drink and we certainly have something to talk about. Uh, yeah, this is a film that we have covered a few times along the way, of course, as it's made its way all the way to just about the championship round. And it did premiere at the old After Dark Horror Fest 4 Believe it or not, with a PG rating. I don't know how many times we've talked about that. I mean, I can't argue with it, but it is kind of mind-blowing that this 
this movie that's made it to the final four of our, our horror movie tournament is a PG rated film. And it's not from like 1975, like jaws or something like that. Well, I actually find that surprising. Yeah. I, I would have thought the sex tape would uh, sort of push it past the PG PG rating. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit surprising, but really? uh, that's what I, that's what I saw online and I trust everything online. Right. So the internet <laughs> told me, <laughs> well, it was it was pretty tasteful for a sex tape, I have to say. So. Yeah, I mean, for a sex tape, you literally see nothing but, I guess, some bare skin. But, you know, not even a bum, as they say. And was that Australian or just British? I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I certainly, mean, certainly it no is, fanny. <laughs> it, is, it is simulated sex with a minor. Like, the, doesn't that count for at least a PG-13? You know, even in Australia? Come on. I am not a Puritan, Rich, but I think I'm, I'm with you on that. It's, it's, it's a little baffling. All right. <laughs> uh, well, the, the MPAA strikes again. <laughs> well, one of the reviews, uh, strangely, because I think we dealt with this in September and October, and I remember uh, Rich mentioning that he'd found some newer writing, and at that time I didn't. But I've caught up now, and I read like a bunch of interesting pieces of uh, critical theory on this film, watched several YouTube things, and I guess I missed it the first three or four times around, but I did read a, a review on Decider. A guy named Matthew Jackson said that this feels like something you'd watch on your local public broadcasting station, and certainly that would be closer to PG. So maybe it's sort of in that sense of like journalistic intent allows you to show some things that might be a little disturbing or it's not prurient, I guess is what I'm saying. Maybe sort of in that somewhat um, objective, non-exploitational vibe of the film, that's kind of where you would um, give it a pass uh, as it's a, a serious work of documentary filmmaking, sort of the guise of the film. Well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting way into the movie because it is tonally unlike anything else in the competition and really unlike almost anything I've seen in, is in horror films. It's, it's really an interesting take and it's, it is so authentically done that, yeah, I can see what you're saying that, that it, it, that would cause you to gloss over that part of it, I think. Yeah, I'd I'd say even within the realm of like you know this this term sort of like I think misdirects what this film is, but like in the the, the realm of like mockumentaries of all genres, uh, I actually think that this is is perhaps the best that that I've seen. And so yeah, they're they're nailing a, a tone that is very unique, I think, to this film specifically. Yeah, it's almost unfair to call it a mockumentary in the sense that there's a certain obvious artifice or joke with a mockumentary, right? I mean, even though it has the, the trappings of a real documentary, it's not really going to fool anyone. But of course, this movie just absolutely nails little things like the somewhat awkward and halting and restrained delivery of people that don't want to break down on camera and are sort of in a, an uncomfortable situation, be as forthcoming as they can, but they're not, you know, they're not going to be big and dramatic the way that actors you would think would gravitate to this kind of material and, and have these sort of overwrought 
reactions. And maybe it's, I was thinking it's some somewhat Australian thing. There's a stoicism and a, certainly with like the dad, an old school kind of machismo that maybe that's not the right word, but there's an old school masculinity, at least. I think that's fair. That, that sort of permeates this whole family of like not being emotional. And, and maybe that's even part of why they don't express their feelings for each other. And that's one of the great kind of emotional tragedies of the film, but it also kind of lends itself to their understated and naturalistic and restrained performances as well. I think we should jump into it then. Cause I've got a whole bunch of things I want to say about that, but I feel like they're going to come up as we're going through the movie. All right. Well, let's roll this bad boy then. Unless Rich, did you have any, uh, preliminary thoughts? I just wanted to get y'all's a brief overview. Something that, that really stuck with me last time we talked about this movie and I was paying attention to this time and didn't come any closer to answering is the chronology of it. And I, I'm just curious, you know, we don't necessarily have to get into specifics, but I'm curious if you guys were able to pick up on what the timeline of all the events in this movie are, because I ended up walking away with it on this viewing when I was really looking for it, feeling like, it, there are there are no answers. Like it doesn't clearly tell you when, like when all the different events happen. To the point where I thought it was almost intentional that they were not telling you what order things happened. And I don't know. Well, so I actually made a note of a few things, but specifically that the trip to Lake Mungo was in August of two thousand five. Mm. So if we can see when this, like, what the date is when this picks up, and I believe it. At a certain point, we get a 2007 date. I have to go through my notes because I did jot that down as well. Well, I but, think that everything, like the drowning happens in December, and wouldn't it be 2005? I mean, we're about to find out, but that's my thought. Exactly. But that's what I mean. So that gives us, I feel like the fact that she went to Lake Mungo in, in August will give us a, a grounding. Because I was really trying to track, well, I was really trying to track when that happened versus some of the other twists and stuff that happened uh, because I, I still hold to my theory that that um, something in her changed radically after that experience in the lake. But, again, I could be wrong, and it'll be fun to watch uh, how that plays out as we go through it now. All right, and I, I had to I stifled a laugh while Rich was talking because as soon as I hit pause, I, I hope you guys are seeing this, it said, uh, rated R <laughs> on the, on the <laughs> screen. <laughs> <laughs> drug use, foul language, sexuality, and violence. So uh, I guess the whole PG thing was uh, fake news. So, <laughs> so we start with all of these uh, vintage, extremely old photos of ghosts in other centuries in the earliest days of photography. And they kind of connect the story we're about to see to history. And they remind us that some notion of the ghost and even of capturing ghosts with a camera have been with us for a very long time. And this tale uh, comes from that tradition. And the music is rather chilling as well. Yeah, I think this is a really effective and tone-setting opening. I mean, one of the things watching it this time that I really focused on was, what are the things about this that make it feel like a horror film? Like we say, you know, it's a discussion that we've had. Rich and I certainly firmly fall on the, the belief that this is a horror film. But what what is it about it that makes me say that? And so I was really looking for the elements that are creepy. What are the things that they're doing, you know, in between the scary scenes? What are the things that they're doing to to really amp up the tension and the suspense? 
that really gets under my skin. And that's that opening is a perfect example. The music is creepy. The images are creepy. The voiceover works. It sets the tone for a, a, a creepy ghost story. It's kind of, I sort of have actually like mixed feelings about the opening. I mean, I actually think it works just fine for the film. Uh, you know, you, I like the little, the little snippets of, of dialogue from throughout the movie woven in or, or like an appropriate teaser for, for something like this, you know, presuming that is that you're watching a, a documentary. You know, it, it's interesting that it never really tries to make a, a larger global point about um, the idea of like ghosts or like capturing ghosts. And so it's a bit of an odd choice because, like, it, it, we never really come back to that idea. But I don't, I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't bother me. I I like that the that what they are doing is they do have a series of photos where you're seeing a ghost, and then the last image that you get is an, an image of our the family that we're going to follow throughout this film. And it's a photo that will we don't where we where we as the audience don't see the ghost, and we won't until later on in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm more just thinking that obviously so much of this film is about capturing ghosts in in photography in various ways. So the through line is is very clear, and it's the whole Lake Mungo itself. The whole idea of it is that we're looking at layers of history there and that's like where the Mungo man was found and the Mungo woman and sort of like the first human beings uh, remains found in Australia and kind of just connecting throughout time, the kind of impermanence and brevity of life and how we're all here and gone, but are we really gone? I guess is another one of the sort of uh, ideas that the film is exploring. Uh, I think there's a lot going on there. And I think there, there is some kind of connection between what Mungo represents itself and, you know, the ghosts throughout time and photography throughout time and the kind of elusive way that we can capture things and then lose them and get glimpses of things that are, that we'll never really be able to put our hands on, but that, that, were real or are real, but are ephemeral and cannot be fully understood, which is basically anyone else other than ourself, right? Because you never really know anyone except yourself. And and if you lose them too soon, there will always be questions that you, you would like to ask, but you can't. And I know I'm throwing a shit ton of things out there, but I feel like it's all kind of thrown out in this opening sequence to a degree. I don't know, John. Do you really feel like we know ourselves? <laughs> I mean, th- that's a whole other conversation. You might be right. <laughs> Maybe true. we'll find out as we explore the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to come to grips with my own self. <laughs> my own corpse will face me off uh, on a dark night. March Madman confession. <laughs> uh. I do want to point out, too, just to to jump back to our our earlier conversation, uh, we have arrived at the title card that does confirm that Alice did die in December 2005. So it was just a few months after her August trip to Lake Mungo. I'll be curious to see, now that I have that time frame fixed in my head, exactly how that impacts how I'm reading her character and, and some of the stuff that we learn about her. Yeah, the title card, literally, it's in December 2005, a tragic accident began a series of extraordinary events that thrust a grieving family in the small Victorian town of Ararat into the media spotlight. 
And the idea that there were these people were thrust into the spotlight is kind of interesting because other than the fact that this program, this documentary itself exists, we don't see a ton of it directly. There are references to it. The, the, the movie is composed of like a lot of news footage too. Mm-hmm. Like in, a, in addition to the doc- documentary footage, they're always cutting away to news reports and interviews with police that are, that are done by the news. And they, may, they do make references a couple times, particularly midway through when, when you kind of get the first big story reveal about the brother. They make references to like the, the news crews that were in town. So I think probably just like their their bar for you know being thrust into the spotlight is is just kind of low in rural Australia, um, <laughs> and I, I think the attention they got just sort of merited that. Literally one spotlight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the media spotlight. Yeah, it's not like the reporter from Scream showed up. Uh, God, what's her name? Something Weathers. Uh, Gail Weathers, Gail Weathers. Yes. It's not like she showed up and did a tell all, uh, book, but this title card kind of reminds me of Blair Witch. I mean, obviously this film has multiple obvious parallels to Blair Witch, but one of them is that it's playing the original found footage game, which I don't think a lot of movies do. I'd like to hear Vic's perspective, especially as someone who's written one of these movies, but where part of the game, the conceit is that the audience is supposed to really wonder and maybe not even know if this is real or not, because it is a pretty normal, believable documentary. So that's one of the things that I, I see a real comparison between this and Blair, which that that is is those are the two only the the two of the only found footage films that I can think of that really are playing the game well maybe this is just real yeah and it's it really is an interesting take on the story and you're right that this title card gives it it feels like that that's what I mean I used the word authenticity earlier and I really feel like that applies to the film now like Blair Witch when you see the credits roll at the end, it sort of it sort of spoils the game. But the process of watching it the first time can be a little. I mean, like it would be fun to find somebody who's never seen this and tell them that it's just a documentary and sort of see how they react to it. I think if you I, just like stumbled onto it on TV, wouldn't that be a possible reaction? Yeah, for sure. And uh, the other thing that I think is interesting that I've really paid attention to is the degree to which the town becomes a character in this. They have so many interview subjects and so many wide shots. You look it up on the Wikipedia, uh, Ararat has 8,000 people in it. So it really does. It lends to the credibility of that take that if something like this happened in the, uh, the rural Australian media spotlight, it's certainly possible that you never heard of it or that things like this are happening in little towns like this around the world. And, and, you know, and this is how you would find out about it. So I really think it, it fits the town, the setting fits with what they're trying to do in the documentary format. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it definitely feels like just this little, I mean, we, we see true crime documentaries where you're like, I can't believe that story. I mean, it's so wild and, and Hey, Quick question. So we just saw some like what looks like the like eight millimeter home yeah. video footage of the family walking. That footage comes up a couple of times. Who's shooting that? I thought that too. Yes, yes. <laughs> Who's the person that would be shooting that if all of the, the whole family is uh, is in the picture? 
yeah, that that's an obvious one. But yeah, the the sort of super eight home videos that are interspersed throughout the film that that definitely begs the question. I mean, it, it's like, well, maybe they had a friend or whoever, or a neighbor. It's not that big of a deal, but it does stand out. <laughs> well, and it's a strange, like it's the the that footage. It looks like the Wonder Years. Yes. You know what I mean? By the like, way, is he depancing his sister? Is that what he's trying to do? The brother? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like he's he's going for her butt from behind. I, I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's definitely a lot of horseplay between the two of them uh, whenever you see them. That's true. Yeah, that is very true. See, look, he is. He's trying to pants her. <laughs> I was I was just gonna throw out on the on the topic of the the rural nature of things. That was my when I when I arrived in this uh, this undisclosed uh, rural NorCal town that I'm in. Uh, honest to God, when I was like looking around trying to think of how to describe it to people, I was like, I was like, this is the kind of place where like no one's ever heard of it. But when you hear that there was a string of murders here, you're not surprised. <laughs> So it's like, yeah, it's like that. It's like, it's just, it just, it's not quite important enough in the global spectrum to be considered news when something like this happens. Yeah. When the HBO documentary series comes out about those, those crimes, we'll just totally go with it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we get a little, as we're trying to assiduously um, chart the time of uh, events here, the, the timeline, the emergency call that June makes about her daughter, Going missing is uh, December twenty first, two thousand five. So we can confirm that. Yeah, it's the same year. And as you're going to see on the time code for a lot of the video that we're going to see to come of Alice at the at the dam, it's all December twenty first, two thousand five. And wait, so uh, this this part actually threw me off a little bit. She says her daughter has gone missing, but uh, am I wrong that we're led to believe later that? Like, aren't they there when she drowns? Like, doesn't she just, like, disappear into the water? Well, we don't really get exact circumstances of her death, but we get as close as we're going to come in the next uh, scene or so. But, yeah, it's very murky, and there really is no explanation for how or why someone would drown on this day in this place, and yet no one questions it. Well, I I think based on Matthew having now tried to pants his sister twice in a public street, that <laughs> obviously his feelings of sexual frustration caused him to drown her in the lake. <laughs> well, the brother in this movie is working through a lot. Yeah. I got to say, the B-roll in this movie is honestly like top-notch. Like this is like Errol Morris, high-quality, small-town film B-roll. Yes, yeah, that's what I would think about setting the about the, the town feeling like a character in this. Oh yeah, the uh, the the DP on this does fantastic work, and even the the video, like the stuff you see, like this the news footage, this this grainy sort of televised broadcast, like it all feels very authentic. It's extraordinary how convincing everything is in this movie. It's it's really an achievement. So yeah, in, in the film, like we're getting all of this about the the, rep- the public report, and that's where Matthew's explaining the circumstances of his sister's disappearance. And as Rich was questioning, yeah, the way it plays out is he says that he's going to get out of the water because he's cold, and he goes ahead and does that, and he assumes that she's 
coming along after he he swims back, but she she doesn't. And at first he doesn't you know think much of it, and then suddenly they just realize that uh, they don't know where she is. I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 so peculiar that in the nine one one call the mother says she's she's missing. But uh, but then I don't know. I, again, I guess that that is exactly the kind of detail that actually lends it some level of realism. That like someone who is in shock or not accepting the fact that their that their child just drowned nearby them, you know, like that they're they're not willing to come to grips with that possibility yet. So it's like sure she's she's missing, like she's just somewhere that she needs to be found, not at the bottom of the lake. Well, you're going to cling to any ray of hope that you can, I think, as a parent, right? Because it's yeah. not confirmed, and, and you never know. But yeah, you sure. get these ominous clues, like, you know, the towel is still there. She clearly hadn't gotten out of the water, Matthew, her brother, says. Yeah, the, the ominousness, the dread, just starts to slowly build. And you really feel for these people. You get these little insights into what how surreal this kind of loss would be. And there's one coming up that I found quite powerful. But before we get there, we had this video, the home video that we just looked at here, of the sister kind of pulling on the camera person, which must be Matthew, I guess, like trying to coax him into the water. So that must have been earlier that day. She really wants to go swimming. I find it interesting that they have this B-roll of the family at the dam, and it's, you know, it's, it's, there's sort of beautiful shots and I can see why they did it, but I'm just trying to imagine the, the director of the documentary saying to this family, so listen, do you guys mind just meandering around the site of your daughter's death so I can get some shots of you, like looking wistfully out of the water? You know, it, I mean, it, 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 it works it's kind me. of perfect though. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It, it's, it seems like exactly the kind of thing they do, they would do yeah. in like, uh, you know, when making a true crime documentary about some families like tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. You, you bring them back to the, the scene of the crime, so to speak. And it's a gray day and it sort of fits their emotional state. And it's, it's, it's clearly not the same time of year. I mean, it's Australia, so they're normally swimming in December and, you know, maybe this was June or whatever, uh, a couple of years later. And they're just sort of reminiscing or, or reflecting on, on the experience. And absolutely. I've seen that on Dateline or whatever else. <laughs> so yeah, we're coming up on the part that I was referring to where they talk about driving home and she's not there. And it just, that drives it home so much that you go home. Okay. No, you go somewhere together, the family, all of you, and then inexplicably and horribly, on the way home, there's an empty seat. It's just so messed up if you think about it. It's an incredibly simple idea. And they don't like go out of their way with it. It's just verbal here. They don't show you. They don't recreate that or anything. But it's an incredibly uh, powerful. There actually aren't any recreations in this. No, there aren't. I mean, I, I, I think that that's actually – that's actually something that I, I was really enjoying just looking at throughout the course of the movie is they do a really delightful job of like of what you do with the documentary. Right. Which is like you take two, you take the footage you have and you marry images that maybe don't have anything to do with each other in a way that kind of imbues both of them with a new meaning. 
and like that's what you do in in lieu of recreations at least in a certain style of, of filmmaking and uh and they do it really well here there's a couple places where i would love to point out that they where they do it especially effectively yeah it's 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 a very classy approach yeah it, there's something sort of inherently silly about recreations i mean some are done better than others but i think they made the right choice not going with that documentary trope i like the way too as we're 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 now they're back at the house and we're starting to meet uh, june's family and that sort of thing they're already laying in this notion of mothers being disconnected from their daughters as a theme that's going to carry through this i like the way that that they work that in very organically here uh, just to lay the groundwork for the stuff that's going to come up later. Well, especially I, I forget who this one lady is. Who's like basically kind of a, a local like busybody <laughs> that is, it must be some friend of the family, but like she does nothing but like cast skepticism on this family pretty much the entire course of the film. Like every time she pops up, she seems like, a friend of or she's friendly with them in like a neighborly kind of way, but like, she's not so sure about them. Yeah. She's sort of a frenemy type. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. She says a lot of things where she's obliquely throwing shade at them. I, yes. Agreed. <laughs> she's, she's someone who's seen a lot of these kinds of documentaries and knows what the director <laughs> wants from her. Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah, I, back to the grandparents for a second. I, I also felt compassion for them because you sort of get the idea what the night was like for them, knowing that their granddaughter was missing and they're just and probably dead. And they're waiting for a call to confirm that and trying to sleep, just how unimaginable it is. Um, but go ahead, try to imagine it. <laughs> like you're <laughs> How peculiar. It's like you get that, like you get the, the, you know, the grandfather saying it was the worst night of our lives. And like, I, I actually find his delivery of that, that line, like really compelling and yeah. like sympathetic and you never really see him again. But it, it is interesting that, that we're introduced to them for the first time. And that's also when you bring in this, this frenemy lady, you know, the, like right off the bat saying like, well, it was pretty weird that like grandma would be there. I got right. the impression grandma had been drinking, but you didn't hear that from me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like you're fearing the worst as the grandparent and you think, you know, but not yet for sure. You're in a weird place between uh, shattered and feeling that thin ray of hope. But I think that hope that you don't know for sure only makes it more excruciating perhaps because you can't just deal with the fact that something horrible has happened. You're just, it's pure dread. It's just pure disquiet and sense of, um, knowing there's something wrong, but because it's not confirmed, it, it almost just makes it more torturous. If that makes any sense. That's how I see this. It's, it's really rough. So yeah, there's this idea of this three generations of this, of these women, and there's something going on with their inability to have the loving, uncomplicated relationship that you would want to have with someone that close to you. And the consequence is that if somebody dies unexpectedly, you're going to have all this baggage and you're going to have all these regrets and you're going to have this sense of not knowing if they knew how you really felt about them. 
And we kind of get that here when the comment that the mother or the grandmother makes that it's not the normal order of things. Yes, the mother says that, that, you know, she has her mother with her for this, but her daughter is gone. And there's just something so we brace ourselves for life and death and the circle of life or whatever, but like, it's just not supposed to happen that way. And there's, you're just not, there's no way you could ever be prepared for it. And it just feels so wrong. And yeah, there's the line, uh, where the worst light line, the worst night of our lives. It's, it's, it's a great delivery by the grandpa. And then we get the, um, the mother talking about going into her daughter's room and the phone went off a few times, but she didn't answer it. And there's something awful about that too, that people are still calling Alice's phone. People maybe that heard she was missing, calling to check on her or just normal life, just normal calls. And there's a time lapse over this sequence. It's very cool. There's something creepy about a, a room slowly darkening. You know, John, someone desperately needed to talk to her about the warranty on her car. And it is a tragedy that she was not there to answer that phone. <laughs> she could have saved so much money on her auto insurance. She just picked so up. So much money. <laughs> This time-lapse shot is also the first time we're going to see a room that we're going to spend a lot of time in in this movie. I mean, you were going to see this that room from every angle, from every like time of day. Um, we're going to see it on multiple different types of video. It's going to appear in dreams. And it's just a very simple room. It, it feels very real like the rest of the movie, but it's a good way of introducing it with the sun going down on it. Yeah, yeah, it's such an evocative thing. Life draining out of the room, in a sense, is the idea. This is such a cool photo that we get of, uh, I guess they're in prep school or something. They have uniforms, and the daughter, Alice, is riding on the shoulders of her, her boyfriend, a character we'll get to know a little bit. This guy, Jason Whittle, who got a call from June that night and uh, June told him that Alice had presumed been presumed to have drowned. And apparently he was one of the people to then call Alice. It's, it's funny that you mentioned this because I also noted that I really like this photo. I think it comes down to the fact that, you know, that the, the, all the photos in this movie, like the candid ones feel like candid photos and, uh, if I had to boil it down, I, I was watching a, a I was watching a movie the other night with my with my wife, and we were just like talking about how bad the chemistry was in the cast. And I feel like this is an example of a movie where somehow everyone seems to have great chemistry, where you just kind of put them in the same frame together, and you completely buy that they have a relationship and a backstory. You know, just the way that the people look at each other in the frames of this makes it feel authentic and not like something that's being staged. Um, it's a tough thing to capture, and it's the kind of thing, you know, we, I know we talked before about how this was a lot of non-actors and a lot of improvisation in this film, and I'd be so curious to find out what the backstory is of, like, the relationship between any of these actors and how many of them knew each other, because I feel like it's rare for it to read as well as it does in some of these shots. Absolutely. I mean, it begs the question, how many of these shots did they have to get these, you know, the ones that they use? And how fascinating putting this collage together must have been as filmmakers. Just great instincts, great storytelling. The vision here is so clear 
and they know exactly what they're going for. And, and this Joel Anderson, I mean, uh, he, he's a, the enigma at the heart of this film is Joel Anderson. And where is he? And why won't he make another movie? <laughs> and what do we have to do <laughs> to get him to do something? <laughs> it's, it's almost interesting that like, I feel like I, I know I read, I can't remember if we all shared the article about sort of the lore of Joel Anderson in this movie. And the fact that like people have tried to find him and nobody kind of knows where he is. And, a lot of times as we've gone through this process, especially when we were talking about historical significance and where this, you know, this or that film fell in a director's filmography and what that said about their ultimate impact on the genre and stuff. This is really unique in that his enigma almost makes the film more compelling. Like it's almost more interesting because it was directed by somebody that has only <laughs> ever done a you know a movie with a talking paper clip after this. Yeah. <laughs> it adds to the legend of Lake Mungo, right? Yeah. Yeah. I did feel too that I, I kinda wish we'd gotten a little more backstory on the boyfriend because I know we get a, a line or two about it, but like his revelation that she was in a relationship with this other couple like that must have been devastating. And he plays it. The actor plays it really well when it sort of comes up. But it's – I don't know. It was, I just felt like that was a – there was some meat there in terms of what his perception of her was and how it changed uh, even in a very different way than we get from the rest of our family, say. Well, yeah, it's a different relationship and it's especially relevant to her sexual life, right? You know, the idea that she's having sex with not one, but two other people behind her boyfriend's back. In the moment, but the moment, and I know I I don't mean to jump too far ahead, but the That's that's Vic in a nutshell. Let's jump ahead about three quarters through the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Vic. (laughs) I was trying to think of a a snappy comeback, but I don't have anything. You're right. I do that. Fuck you, all right? Um, that's, my, that's my snappy comeback. Hey, it's never let you down, Vic. That one always, that's a trusty comeback. Um, uh, also, you can call me a son of a bitch if that makes you feel better, too. It always does. Yeah. It never fails. It's the aspirin of snappy comebacks. What, what he says is, I thought we were good. And they show a couple pictures of them together. And it, it just that picture sort of encapsulates that same thing, that I thought we were good. And so it's not just sexual. It is this, this, this sort of emotional component of we were a happy couple. I didn't know anything was wrong. And yet something must have been because she was doing she – was, she was keeping these secrets. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is like it might not be her mother's business on some level even though, yeah, she's 16. But it's definitely his business. That's all I'm mm-hmm. saying. Yeah. Well, it, it also gives you, I mean, like if you really want to wrap your mind into like story knots when thinking about this thing is that something that separates the way that, that, that we're being told this story from any other film that we've watched is that all of the people talking know the ending. We just don't right. know the ending. Right. So they're all approaching it like so when you're being introduced to that boyfriend, he already knows all of the secrets and he's reflecting back on this with all of that knowledge that we're not going to be armed with until later on. And so when you view each of these little interviews through that lens, I feel like all of a sudden there's all these like different angles where you can where you have something to gain from watching it a, a second or third time or in as kind of what you're saying, Vic, is that where maybe they could have mined that a little deeper. 
Well, and I have some questions about that, Rich, that I'm going to save until we get to that part of the movie. Well, let's not make any promises we can't keep. (laughs) There's a first time for everything. (laughs) So the the, the part of the movie that we're actually watching is where we get to this idea that they leave the porch light on for her that night. And in hopes that if she were to come home, uh, she would see it. And it's so metaphorical. I mean, it's, it's the beacon left burning so that a lost soul can find its way home in the dark. The proverbial dark and the literal dark. And it, it, obviously it's a viscerally poignant idea. I, I was just going to say, I think also this moment is where you get that first sense of what you were talking about with the father, John, because I think he kind of chuckles his way through this, right? He's like, he's always, he's talking about this very grim. I mean, the, the the exact thing you're talking about, the leaving the porch light on and that he was doing it just in case she comes home, like this terribly like heartbreaking and sad thing to have to be happening in real life. And he delivers it with, uh, sort of a, a, a chuckle and a smile, not as though he finds it funny, but it's like a sort of a discomfort at his own humanity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's, he's so uncomfortable and not in touch with these feelings that he, his self defect defense mechanisms are driving the car like throughout the whole film and throughout all the accounts that the other characters like we'll get to it later. But, uh, his coworker weighs in on, on his method of dealing with his grief later. And yeah, this is a guy who's a very traditional, his vision of masculinity and how he should be acting and the way you cope with these situations that can't be coped with. He has a playbook and he's sticking to it, but you can see the pain shining through. That's the, that's why the actor is so good is that you can kind of see the hollowness to it. This is a a brief tangent, but it's in the, the, you guys said that made me think of when Sandy hook happened and there was all the controversy about that being a, a, a conspiracy of some sort and that those people were all actors and the proof that, that some of these people were offering was video of the parents essentially behaving just like this and saying, who would do that after their, after their child died. Mm-hmm. It, I just, it, it really strikes me that we all watch this and I, and I agree with you guys a hundred percent that we all watch this and think this feels very real. This feels very genuine. This is, you know, a, a defense mechanism. This is something people do so that they don't break down. And yet it is not the most obvious, like, default parental response. And you do kind of have to know guys like this or of guys like this to sort of reconcile the fact that, that, yeah, he's not behaving in the way we think he should be behaving, but it is a way that people absolutely do process things. So we get this uh, cut to, and it's very hard to make out the shot at first, and it's it's quite unsettling once you realize what we're looking at. That we have a boat going by, and we see a diver, and there's some there's some vague shape in the water uh, beside him, and then you start to your eye starts to pick out that he's holding the floating corpse of of Alice, and just waiting for 
transport to, to come out to him in the water so that he can put this body, uh, this bloated corpse into, um, a little dinghy and see it to shore. Jesus Christ. That's a terrible job. Yeah. No kidding. Right. You get used to it. (laughs) (laughs) It has its perks. (laughs) They're good listeners. The dead bodies. He gets, he gets the next day off. So yeah, they use sonar to find her body in this, uh, dam. And apparently she, the corpse was, um, the corpse was floating on this shelf of some kind, um, the bottom of a stormwater cistern. And John, don't pretend to understand how dams work. (laughs) I really won't actually, but I was thinking like, if you shot that scene, like if they did a bad Lake Mungo remake that wasn't found footage and you just like have the diver finding the corpse, that would be, that would be, um, unsettling. So, Here's the next big plot point of the film that June and Russell, those are the parents, they went down to the dam when they were, you know, phoned with the information that their daughter's body had been found and the body needs to be um, identified. And what is significant about this is that June, the mother, stays in the car. She, She refuses to see the body because she doesn't want to remember her daughter like that. Russell suggests that June not seeing the body was a mistake because she didn't have any closure. And even this guy who's sort of positioning things publicly in a certain way will say that publicly. And I think the idea that for him, at least once he saw that body, it was over. He to a degree. And I think there's some, evidence that contradicts this, but he was somewhat more, certainly more able to move on than, than June was. His daughter was gone because that thing that he identified was not his daughter anymore. And I think that when she says, I did not want to remember her, you know, dot, dot, dot in that way, I think it's artfully said, but the meaning is really clear that she didn't want to be haunted for the rest of her life by the image of Alice looking like that. I mean, that's pretty fair. Yeah. Except, except ever the spiteful teenage daughter, Alice put that image on a cell phone camera <laughs> and showed it her later. <laughs> she made sure that if her mother watched this documentary, she was going to get to see. <laughs> I thought this line, this, the, the, the dad saying that he feels like it's a, it's what a father does yeah. to identify his child's body has always stuck with me because I, I'm both like shocked by the line and like, I'm like, yeah, okay. Like I, I, I get where he's coming from. Um, it's just such an unusual line. Well, he even it's has father this does. look on his face. Like mm-hmm. this is the solidity that he feels good about that. You know, he's going to play the role that he needs to play. And that's where he's, if he's comfortable with anything, he's comfortable with that. And that gives him some satisfaction. But then we start to see this corpse. Oh boy. It is. Boy, yeah. Yeah. The, the makeup and prosthetics artist on this film had one job, but, um, but they, uh, they knocked it out of the park. Oh, they sure did. And this is one of those moments when you're identifying this movie as a horror movie, 
this is this is the first really horrific thing that you get and it's 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 appropriately horrific you know but at the same time it's still within the constraints of documentary and true crime i mean i have seen pictures like that in in documentaries it's funny because I was actually going to go the other way. I was, I, and, and, you know, I've done true crime series before and, you know, where we were given all of the murder scene photos and then had to make, you know, selections based on it. And actually I'd say that there, there is something slightly more, uh, confrontational about the, the, the images they show of the body, I think, than you, than your average true crime story. Just the edge, like just something about the way that it really kind of like lingers on her on her face, um, and you get two like very stark shots, um, albeit quick shots of the of the body. I'm, I'm kind of with you, Vic. I, I feel like you know we're we're maybe what ten minutes into this thing, and I do think that it is kind of announcing that that this movie is going to be a little frightening or chilling is the, you know, like Johnny used that word earlier. And I think that's a very apt word for this movie. Like it's a very chilling way of presenting the information. Uh, yeah. I think there's little, little clues and I'm not disagreeing with either of you. These are clues that this is going to go in a, in a truly terrifying direction. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's not a true crime. Uh, documentary at all so yeah yeah i think it's a it's a super subtle distinction that that is interesting is like true crime is like they want the violence to be like a little more salacious and seductive even when it's like grisly and i don't feel like that's the road that this thing is going down Speaking of roads, the car has to go backwards to the road. <laughs> this is a very yeah, this is a very odd story detail that the father puts in here that he had to drive back in reverse. I can't um, make heads or tail of, tails of it. Like is that uh, is that metaphorical? What is it? I don't get it. Is it something the, about the supernatural? I don't, I don't know. Metaphorical metaphorically my thought was that it, it things feel like they're backwards. Like when you when June was talking about her and her mother, you know, being together because their daughter is missing. Metaphorically, that was the thing I came up with, that it it, it feels like things are backwards, right? That the the parents are going to have to bury their child. That is the the inverse of how these things are supposed to go. That's a reach, right? I agree. This is a strange detail. It mostly made me think of License to Drive with Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, (laughs) (laughs) where climactically he has to drive the car backwards to the hospital because his mother, played by Carol Kane, is having a baby. Yeah, I found a lot of parallels between this movie and that film. I'm, I look forward to highlighting them along the way. <laughs> really, the, the whole the whole catalog of the two Corys, I feel like, is there's a lot of overlap here. Isn't, that, is it, isn't Heather Graham the the girl in like the trunk mm-hmm. in that movie? Yes, yeah, it is. Her name is Mercedes. That's right. God, I don't know why that movie sticks with you. I mean, I saw it once in the theater. But I remember that stuff as well. And it's not, I'm sure, if we revisited it, it would not blow us away in any way, shape, or form. But any, Anybody who wants a, uh, a loving autopsy of license to drive, <laughs> hit us up on social media. We'll, we'll, we'll do that one on the side. <laughs> that'll be our bonus content, yes. Yeah. Uh, that, that'll be the premium pod. <laughs> 
So the body is taken to the morgue, and they do an autopsy on December 27th, and the body is released on the 28th. So at this point, it's been six days since this girl drowned. Pretty obviously not going to be an open casket situation. Weirdly, this kind of evoked the dead kid and terrified to me. And I'm going to bring that up a couple more times. Mm. I see, I start to see some parallels between the little boy coming back in terrified and the time frame of that. And there will be more. But right now it's just kind of random, but it occurred to me and I'll point it out as we, as we go. And there's a wonderful line where June says Alice was lying alone in the morgue while her family celebrated Christmas. Just, I mean, think about that with anyone you you love in your life. It's just mind-bendingly sad. So at about the 12-minute mark, and we're we're almost there, I reckon, uh, we do get a wonderful shot tracking into the morgue with the line that I just mentioned building building atmosphere so well almost reminds me of errol morris in some ways uh or um the documentary work of Werner herzog as well sort of a grizzly man kind of a thing uh, that's something that i noticed about this and again sort of including the how inclusive this is how much the whole town seems to factor into it like they have interviews with everybody like half the town, there's eight thousand people in the town. Half the town is in this movie. <laughs> Four thousand people are in this movie. Well, and and they'll pop up again too. Like I noticed that the the funeral director shows up in some B roll later. So they they're consistent in the people that they that they put in front of the camera. But yeah, I'm with you, Vic. They really they 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 really canvass the town quite well. But it gives it it gives it a very expansive feel. Like it really it, it it makes this town feel very lived in, and it makes this family's connection to it, to their coworkers, to you know the the their friends and and those sorts of things. It makes that all feel really genuine because they really have sketched in everything around it. It's not a very narrow view of this family. You're kind of reminding mm-hmm. me of the value that Blair Witch gets from all of those interviews with the locals at the beginning of that movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just really added to the verisimilitude of the film and they don't seem like actors and you're just getting all these, you know, perspectives on, on the Blair Witch and, and the myth and the, the area. And it, it really sets you up. And I think there's some, some of that here as well, as we start to interview the various people that are peripheral to the story. That's a tough word to say with confidence, John. I'm proud of you. (laughs) So I paused it on this line that June has death takes everything. Eventually. I, I feel like how can that not be an important line? I also like it's the meanest, dumbest machine there is. Yeah, and it just keeps coming in. It doesn't care. And she says, there's nothing else to know about it, really. I think that's it. Case closed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if you think about that, it's pretty powerful. And then we, we have uh, some very convincing uh, news reports, the little interviews where people are just saying nice things about her. And... You know, you see a, a photo that's a few years out of date and just, oh, God, maybe Digital Anderson work at a local TV news station or something? That would that would make 
a lot of sense, wouldn't it? I also just wonder were they rural enough that he was able to like hire the people from the local news station to mm-hmm. produce the the shots that he needed. Oh, that could be too. It kind of reminds me of George Romero and Night of the Living Dead, where in that case it was him and his his team, but they were a local production company that did just hundreds, if not thousands, of Pittsburgh area commercials. And so they just kind of had a facility with everything. And, and certainly with the there's some great local news stuff in that movie. So now we're back to uh, Rich's sort the of frenemy. The, the frenemy. Yep, yep. And... <laughs> and her, her supportive husband, who I don't think has any lines, yeah. and, lo- and looks suspiciously like Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> I was uh, this. This is a little bit of a side, but like I've still been racking my brain to like think of other movies that kind of fit the mold of this one. And one that just popped into my head was when we were talking about local news was The Bay, mm-hmm. um, which which I. I don't think captures the realism as well as this film does. Although I do think it does a, a pretty good job of it better than most of the found footage ilk. But I, I think it, it, it goes out of its way to present itself as a little more documentary than, than most of the, the modern found footage films. I, I think where I was um, drawing the line before was where the movie really is is trying very hard and successfully to camouflage it completely. I mean, most found footage movies, they wouldn't have any impact at all if you didn't at least, you know, moment to moment wonder, or at least your eye didn't see it as being more realistic than traditional filmmaking. Otherwise there'd be no point to do a found footage movie. But I'm, mm-hmm. but the vast majority of them, the Bay included, it's not like you're anyone's, renting that movie thinking it's not, it's not a horror movie. Right. That's, I guess that's what I'm saying. Like it's a really exclusive club that, that you could actually just turn it on on TV and think it was real. (laughs) So I wanted to draw attention to, and again, I don't have a great interpretation of this, but January 15th is when stuff starts happening around the house. That's when we shift the gears to the supernatural point in the story and for whatever reason, it takes that long for phenomena to begin. Are we literally thinking she has to walk home in the night in some way? I don't know. Maybe. Do you guys feel like the these phenomena, they talk about noises in the roof, uh, sounds from outside the window, stuff in Alice's room with the door closing and stuff. Are those actually elements of the haunting? Well, I think some of them are supposed to be elements of the neighbor, right? No, I don't think so. I think it's the haunting. I think that's one of the things that I come back to. Like, this movie is loaded with twists. But the the things that you come back to when we find out that a lot of this stuff has been faked by Matthew, this stuff is the first thing I thought of. I'm like, well, what about the door slamming? What about the, the weird noises? And actually, Rich, to answer your question, I think the guy came in once and couldn't find it. I mean, it's an interesting idea. Did he come back night after night, like searching and could never find the videotape? I don't know. Maybe, but that wasn't my um, reading. Also, the idea that he would come in and then like slam the door on his way out. (laughs) Good point, Vic. (laughs) Like just for spite, right? (laughs) Where's that fucking tape? 
<laughs> well, there's one that I, I can't remember where it happens that, that the brother has a line somewhere um, when he's setting up why he set up cameras in the house. And my interpretation was that he's rea- he was reacting to the neighbors, to the neighbor rummaging through a room. But we can talk about that when we get to it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, the frenemy Georgie is talking about how she got a, a bad vibe from the house. God, could there be a more Australian name for a woman than Georgie? <laughs> She's auditioning for Real Housewives of Ararat. <laughs> she she's ready. Yeah, she's got the bitch tood. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, so the next really interesting idea of this is that the dreams. Okay, dreams are going to be such a huge part of the movie the rest of the way. The thing that we're about to get into is June's dreams that she's afraid to open her eyes when she wakes up because she's afraid that I'm reading into it, but that she might see Alice before her. And we'll come back to that. June definitely has a fear of seeing Alice the way she doesn't want to see her. And here's the terrified parallel that I wanted to bring up that Alice comes home the way the kid did and terrified you get a parallel in the description of the sounds and the windows and, you know, sounds on the roof perhaps. And I was thinking, is she looking for a way in and maybe only in a, in an abstract way, not a literal way, but it gave me the answer to that question on our last podcast. When I asked you guys about this with terrified, why did he go up on the roof? And then I was thinking, well, he couldn't find a way in up there. And then eventually he, comes back to the door and she lets him in. But at least it would be this sort of primal, you know, ghosts are not necessarily, or zombies or whatever, I guess, you know, they're not in their right mind and they, they come home and they, they don't necessarily know how to get in. Right. I mean, I think that's kind of the implication They're They're diminished. They just know they want to be there. Well, and they're also locked out in a yeah. in a very sort of spiritual sense, right? Uh, yeah, and literal too, right? I mean, uh, she doesn't have her keys. <laughs> they don't have to. They don't have to lock their doors in Ararat. True. True. What about the dingoes, Rich? If you don't lock your doors. The dingoes get it. Take your baby. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. I apologize to all the people of Australia. That was bad. Uh, No, John, I I just want to say, because I I think you touched on something interesting, that as we've talked about haunted house mythology in general, what you said about the the ghost coming home reminded me of Beetlejuice, that we do have this this sort of profound emotional connection to our home. And so even though she died at the lake – it is the home that she is haunting. And I think that most of the haunted house movies we've seen, the people who die, the ghost, if, if it is in fact a ghost and not a demon, the ghost that died, died there. Right? Is this the, is this the only movie where the ghost was somewhere else? Well, no, I think that that's something that we've, we've looked at throughout these films is that it's not one size fits all. It's not always, well, where did the murder take place? I think there is sort of the idea that what is the most important place to the spirit? And that's where they go. Now it could be where they died, 
But I think that's sort of on a case-by-case basis. And I think it depends on maybe the circumstances of their death. In this scenario, I think it makes all the sense in the world that she wouldn't be hanging around the dam, you know, that, that home with her family who she never connected with fully the way that she maybe thought that she would if they had enough time, it, it would make sense that this is where her uh, unfinished business is. And it just speaks to the this sort of profound emotional connection that we have to our homes, even in terrified, as you were as you were saying, where you know where are you going? Where do you want to be? You want to be home. It's where you're safe. It's where your family is. It's uh, you know it's a, there's a there's a really powerful draw to that place wherever you died. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's actually a very interesting angle on this genre that that we haven't quite hit on before. And yeah, in in terms of why, I mean, like we've discussed a lot of why it is that houses are scary enough to, to, to boast such a robust genre as they do. But I I think that that is an element of it, Vic. But back to June and her dreams, again, it's the idea that she can't bear to open her eyes, waking up from a dream and see Alice still dripping from the dam as she puts it herself later standing at the foot of her bed, staring at her. And you know what? I do not blame you, June. I don't want to look at that either. So the next interesting thing is that June would rather walk the earth in the middle of the night outside for hours than face the nightmares she's been having at home. I think that's a pretty big statement. She feels safer out there. And she goes into other people's houses. (laughs) Yeah, that one is... That one is very odd. And I, and I also made a note that I was like, I feel like there's almost a, that beat of the story is like a cultural disconnect, at least for for me. And going back to that thing we were just joking about a second ago with them not locking their doors, I think there's some truth to that. That like, they were in a town where she really could just walk around into other people's homes. And be okay um, with that, right. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, and, and be okay with it and not get shot, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, try, try doing that in Texas. Um, <laughs> that is a strange detail. It reminded me a little bit of the car driving backwards. I was like, that's such a, that's such a strange thing. But what I think they're pointing at is the very strange and different ways that people deal with guilt that they're with, or with loss or with grief mm-hmm. that dad throws himself into work, which is, which is kind of a stereotypical guy reaction, but he's kind of a stereotypical guy, dad. Uh, mom is doing something strange and what they're setting up is that Matthew is also going to do something very strange as a way of dealing with this loss. Yeah. Just to, just to try and lay some groundwork so that that revelation doesn't just feel like a plot twist, but actually has some, some weight behind it or some explanation. And I think that that's part of what this is about is that this family is all dealing with it in very different ways, and some of those ways are are strange and even inexplicable. Well, structurally, we're going right down the line, like stacking these sequences. This sequence that we've been talking about is June talking about what she was doing, and we're about to go into her husband, Russell, and talking about how he was dealing with this grief. And then I think we go right into Matthew from there. So yeah, I think that's this portion of the film is just about how each of the three of them are, are processing this. But yeah, she has the line that she just wanted to be inside someone else's life for a while. And I get that. Like I'm imagining her looking at their family photos and the sign of their, their life 
their messy, complicated life in progress and just thinking of how much, how simple and healthy and whole it is, even if they don't realize it because they're not missing one of their own. I feel like they do such an interesting job of painting what I feel like is, is a portrait of some very unhappy people without getting overwrought and overdramatic about that exploration. And I, I think that that was in existence before Allie's death as well, or at least that's what I feel like is applied, especially with the case of the mother. Well, yeah, that's, I think that's sort of the whole concept of what's left unsaid and unresolved is that this family was not as open and loving with each other and, you know, whether it's cultural or individual, their, their upbringing, certainly their idea of who they should be and how they should interact. They, they were not prepared for this in a way that maybe other families, you know, nobody's prepared for something like this, but, but they, they have the, the sense of loss of, of just the great, you know, Oh God, if I only had, you know, five minutes with this person, and not everyone has that type of guilt or that type of loss because, you know, some of us would feel that if someone that we love was lost to us tomorrow, it wouldn't be, my God, I wish I said X, Y, or Z, right? But this family definitely does. So we're here at a big, big point here where in February, he comes home from work and he's sitting in the kitchen. And this is the other thing that doesn't add up to well, Matthew was faking something. And coming from the guy who's resisting all of this as much as he possibly can, this this has a huge significance. He recounts what happened. He came home from work. He's sitting in the kitchen. He hears a noise coming from, as he calls her, Allie, her room, Alice's room. He goes in there, and this almost goes into sci-fi for me. And it's just really fascinating trying to think about what's really happening here. It's almost like overlapping timelines or something because he goes in and then Alice walks in like he's not there and she just goes to her desk. This is obviously living Alice, not dead Alice. And she's sharpening a pencil. She's checking her phone. She's checking her text messages and he's freaked out, he says, but it looks like he's just observing a moment from her her living life, right? Her normal life before she was gone. She's oblivious to his presence. And then somehow he makes a sound, right? Squeaked his shoes, as I think Vic mentioned earlier. And she goes completely rigid. Again, like in her timeline, she's hearing a ghost or something. She's hearing a weird mm-hmm. sound. And I think there's something to this, guys. And I, I don't have it figured out. I haven't read anyone or seen anything that totally has a great theory for this. But... To me, this has like almost a parallel timelines, parallel realities, something going on. It's like uh, an inter- interdimensionality to it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Where she's in her previous timeline, she's haunted by echoes of her parents who appear to her as ghosts because they're the future versions of them. And she probably doesn't really see them. And, and and it just seems like weird phenomena to her because she I, freaks out at this point. I, I will say one interesting bit of uh, ephemera that, that may or may not be connected to it is 
you know, so he goes on to say, like, she she turned around, she looked him in the eye, and she screamed, get out, get out. Um, when we get to the end of the film, there's a bit of the, the brother showing us some of the, like, the home video footage that he has of his sister. And one of them is a video that appears to be the brother recording his sister in her room back when she was alive. And she turns around and stands up from the desk and screams, get out, get out. And I was wondering if that was supposed to be a parallel. Like was the father sort of replaying that video? Like, I don't know, but, but it certainly seems connected with also the fact that the, you know, we'll later learn that the brother was using videos, videos of the sister to, to kind of fake a haunting. But I don't know. I, I feel like both are, I almost feel like both are true. This seems to be the one moment that is not connected to the dreams in any way. Right. Cause it's not, yeah, he's awake. This yeah. stuff, her, the stuff with her mom where she, she has a dream about going to see the mom and then mom has a dream about her being at the front of the bed. And like, there's a lot of overlap in those things. There's no overlap here. Alice never talks about this moment in any of her meetings with Ray or anything. This seems like something that just happened to him. That also the, the, the merging timelines thing made me think of Oculus. Oh yeah, and that's really the moment that we see play out between the 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 older version of the brother and his younger self. Mm-hmm. Is really that that moment sort of played out, you know, in, in not in in dialogue, but being played out on camera. Those are great points, Vic. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a singular thing in the film, and it doesn't totally fit into any of the mo or the mythology that we're sort of piecing together uh, because it is a, a waking experience and where exactly it fits in and, and what is actually happening here is one of the great secrets of the film. At the end of the movie, when we look back on what Alice's life was like, it certainly seemed like she was almost going through what we would be, what we would call akin to time travel where she was having an overlapping experience of what it is like to be dead in advance. So yeah, like it's, 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 it's like a, it goes beyond just her seeing her own death. She's seeing beyond her own death. Yes. Yeah. There's, she's, she's seeing into the future in more ways than one. So more good time-lapse photography and very eerie and some shots of the stars and just great. Yeah, the B-roll here, Rich, as you pointed out, is first rate. I have noticed as we've stepped through it that we were wrong about there being no recreations. There are some occasional recreations in this thing, but it's it's funny in remembering the film, I don't I don't remember those. Oh, uh, where's what's the recreation? Uh, the father getting up and exploring the room, the car driving in reverse, uh, the mother, the mother getting up at night. Like they're just, just little tiny pieces, but I think it's a fascinating detail that Georgie points out that they're not churchgoers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She says she doesn't know how to offer them any comfort because they're not churchgoers. And especially in a town this small, I feel like that's probably a something noteworthy about them but also just connects to the fact that there's no religious implications here. There's yeah. no, nobody calls a priest. Nobody calls a pastor. It really is this, this movie operates in a, in a very secular way. 
I'm glad you brought that up. That's that's very important. And when we're seeing footage of the church in association with the funeral and we're getting June's view of death and there's clearly the ramifications of afterlife in a discussion of death, yeah, you get all of these clues that Russell and June have absolutely no religious background and they're not interested in taking it on even in this time of extremity where it can be a comfort or can somehow offer people a way to, to, to process grief in a, in, in a way that can be so much more palatable. Like I, I don't want to derail completely, but as you guys know, my cat died recently and you know, you get this, people tell you this idea of the rainbow bridge. You're probably familiar with it and it's just lovely. It's this wonderful concept and I, I, you know, when I got the ashes of my cat, they sent me this whole, like, card detailing the experience of, re- you know, rejoining your pet after it's crossed the rainbow bridge. And, you know, it makes it makes you want to cry. It's so, oh, it's so wonderful to think about if that's, you know, if you can, if you can wrap your head around that, if you can accept that, that tell yourself that that might be a possibility. And so it's it's there for people in moments of grief and loss. And this this family, they do not take that easy road. They do not. They're dealing with this um, without the comfort and benefits of believing in a plan of God, or um, she's in a better place, or will be reunited some t- at some point. None of that is in the picture. And I think that would undermine what we're ultimately the, the the place that we're ultimately going with what does actually happen to Alice, at least as the film seems to posit that idea that she's in a better place would, would ring awfully hollow at yes. the end of this. Film. Yes. And I'm beginning to appreciate that ending more and more. And this viewing was another step forward in that. The, the next point that it doesn't fit with anything else. And I'm not saying it's a bad puzzle piece. It just, I don't know where it fits in is the idea that the son Matthew has these weird bruises and shit all over him. Do you guys have any fucking read on this? Cause I have nothing. I am definitely not sure what to make of, of the, the bruises. Is it supposed to be a, a type of self harm? It does come up right after Georgie says, you know, I didn't know how to help them because they weren't churchgoers, but Matthew's the one I was really concerned about. But even as as self harm, it's a it's a pretty unusual kind, and they don't and they don't really go anywhere with it, except that if it is, he he stops hurting himself and goes and, and switches gears to faking videos of his sister being alive. Yeah, this is uh, a very brief um, episode in the whole storyline, and they never call back to it. I agree; it's 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 another one of those very strange details in this movie. There's a yeah. There's a handful of outliers that you know. I, I know that this film was supposedly partially improvised, and like there's a handful of beats in there where you get the feeling that maybe they were just bits and pieces of of improvisation that they built on, but they never really figured out a way to tie them back into the bigger picture. That I, that would be surprised if there was like a, a a clear reading on this that we're just missing. But hey, maybe maybe. 
weirdly, and I will say this is probably a good moment to mention that my last viewing, I took two gummies, two edibles. And do you guys see this rotating hole in the wall behind this character that we're looking at here? Yeah, we're we're interviewing what the the brother's uh, friend here, right? Yes, yes. Uh, they started a band together. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but I found this bizarre rotating hole to hell. Um, that there, it's some kind of job where you know it's like a farm environment or something. But they have this like steel. I don't know if it's a mouth or an anus, but it has it's evocative somehow in this wall. Like an auger somehow, yeah. They're like skinning pigs or something. Yeah, there's like blood stains on the wall under this this rotating mouth hole, steel mouth hole, and it's just a very arresting image that has ominous connotations, let's put it that way. Like you don't want to go into that hole. I'll say that. And it's a very innocuous scene. Like it's a, this guy's just talking about playing music with, with Matthew, but having this in the background, I mean, certainly jazzes up the, the mise-en-scene, uh, the composition, but to me, it had a hypnotic unsettling quality that stood out. (laughs) I, I, I had the same reaction. It's a, it's a, it's a really captivating frame. Even though there's like a red shovel on the opposite side of, of him. Like it's just a really bizarre paints, a paints, a terror paints, a terrifying picture of a job you don't understand, but you know, you don't want. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I don't want to feed the hole all day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, put it in the hole. <laughs> Put it in the hole. All of this is uh, the the part of the film where we're learning about Matthew and his photography and how he suddenly took to it. Like somehow, his sister's death seemed to be a catalyst. Why does Matthew turn to photography? I think it it, it must be connected to Alice's death somehow. Like, is he planning to capture something? Uh, because it's not paranormal activity in that movie, the guy, the first one, he, he says, um, you know, Oh, this is going on. I want to document it. I mean, he's our, he's someone in, in the entertainment business, but he, he, he's motivated by the phenomena. Well, is that the case here? It seems like he goes to the photos before she's appeared in any photos or images. Like he, the chicken and the egg in this situation is photography comes first and then she appears in the photography. I think that Matthew took to, I think that Matthew got the idea of faking the photographs and then, and then decided to learn how to do it. If you look, they're going to show you a series of his photographs and the, the first couple are very sort of naturalistic. And then he starts to do weird things with the exposures and, and, uh, I really got the impression that they looked like he was trying to figure out how to do it. Like how, how if I was going to fake a ghost in a picture, how could I do it? I have, I have a, I had a totally different read on it. I, to me, like this makes sense as something that someone would do after a traumatic incident like that. And especially in this instance, like what could be more insular and isolationist and self-exploratory in a way of trying to make sense of like the world around you than photography, especially this type of photography that he's doing, which is very old fashioned. You know, he's using 
35 millimeter film and he's using dark rooms and, you know, this is the, the sort of antiquated, this isn't, he's not Photoshopping, you know? I'm with Rich on this one and I actually don't even like, no offense, Vic, your interpretation. I just mean like in the sense that we're going to, where we're going to come to this is his, he's going to explain why he fakes the stuff. Right. And if the idea is that he's sitting there out of nowhere and he's like, you know what? I don't know anything about this, but I'm going to master faking photographs in order to get them to exhume the body so that my mother will accept that my sister is dead. Like, doesn't that sound ludicrous to you as a, as a chain? Like I'm going to pick up a new skill that will require months of training and study in order to get my mother over this, uh, you know, to, to accept that my sister's really dead. Well, I think that in spite of his explanation, it seems to me that it feels like the power to bring her back in some sense. That doing this, even even if that's his stated motivation, I really believe that it has something to do with keeping alive some sense that maybe she's real and maybe she's there. I don't know. By the way, he says that he's been doing this this photograph of the backyard every year for four years. Now that has to predate her dying, right? I mean, okay, it says April two thousand five. Well, but we would be we would be at two thousand nine at, at year four. Does this movie end in two thousand? The movie came out in two thousand nine. Maybe we're reading this wrong, and the discussion of him getting into photography is something that happened a while back and is not necessarily a reaction to Alice's death. Well, like maybe yeah. He was already filming. He was filming everything the day she died, so... Yeah, it can't be. The movie came out in 2008, so you're right. Yeah, maybe we're making too big of a deal out of the photography thing because it, it must have predated it. April 2005, she's alive, and that's the photo that we're looking at at this point in the movie. So, yeah, he started this project prior to her death. So he's just always been a a, a, a photo person, photographer, a photo bug? A photo person. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We're gonna cut all. The, we're gonna cut all this out anyway. We're gonna sell like total jackasses for not understanding what was going on. He's a shutter bug. <laughs> that's what it is. That's what I was looking for. Son yeah. of a bitch. Okay, right. so we're, so we're going to get our first appearance here, right? Yeah, the picture that she's actually in is uh, April 2006 because she died in December 2005. So there she is, somewhat levitating. Her feet don't look to be planted perfectly on the ground. Well, I don't know. Spoiler, he's faked this. That's not really her. But we'll find out in the end of the movie... That she's on the far right of the frame. But let's not deal with that yet. One of the things that I noted is that they use the zoom as a way to conceal those things in the, you know, from the audience when you're, when you're watching it, right? Like they zoom in on these images to draw your eye to the thing they want you to draw your eye to. And then you, you only have a few seconds to, to try and take in the whole image so that later they can zoom in on some other part of it and show you the other thing that's going on. It is it, – it, yeah, it is, it is definitely the editorial equivalent of like a card trick 
right? Yeah. He's, it's, yeah. it's all just like misdirection of like it's, – it's, it's convincing you that you need to look at the thing that you don't need to look at. Yeah, there's a sleight of hand here, a misdirection. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, this is somewhat out of nowhere, but I don't want to forget this. We have all these images of Alice, and generally when she's a ghost, even a real ghost – um, she's wearing like a hoodie. She's wearing, uh, oh, a, yeah, you know, a sweatshirty thing. She's never wearing a swimsuit. Now she was swimming, obviously, when she disappeared. She drowned, so she should be in a swimsuit. We see her in a swimsuit alive in some photos, and the actual crime sceney corpse photos, like right out of the water. Her shoulders are bare when she's the bloated corpse. But when she comes back as a bloated corpse ghost, she's wearing a hoodie. I don't know where that exactly fits into our conversation, but um, what do you guys make of that? I'm wearing a hoodie right now. They're quite comfortable. Are you a bloated corpse? (laughs) (laughs) I've been called one. (laughs) Are you wearing a swimsuit under your hoodie? (laughs) Now, now the answer is that the hoodie is also cursed. <laughs> yeah. The hoodie also died that same day. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a horror movie. The hoodie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we're, we're finding out that this dude, Bob Smoot, took this picture and he thinks it's um, – he's captured her in the background. And this is in like April. And, of course, we're going to find out later that it's actually Matthew – but then at the very end, there we see the ghost in this in this guy's photos as well. But at the moment, we're dealing with the idea that June grabs onto this and thinks that maybe Alice is alive because she says, "Well, it certainly looked like Alice." You know, when she gets wind of these photos because they're you know it's a publicly known thing. Everyone's still talking about this story, and if somebody has a picture like this, like the whole community finds out about it but she calls it an incredibly discomforting image. It is a discomforting image. And it's something about the, the way her arm is up in the air in just this very unnatural way. It really is. I agree. It's a very strange picture. Oh, you think that's her arm? Ooh, I didn't even realize that. I just looked at it. I mean, it could be, I, 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 I did not, I took that as like a tree or something behind her. I did too, but it's it's tough to say. I actually find less discomforting because also don't forget this is Matthew, guys. I guess it's 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 certainly within the realm of of believability, obviously. But this one, this photo in particular, the the Bob Smoot photo, I had a hard time buying the idea that like someone saw that photo and was like, Hey, wait a minute. What's that in the back? Like it's so deep in the background. It's so blurry. It's not like they're at a place where no other human being could have been like, unless there was a lot of fervor around this in this community, which, and maybe there was, that is the implication because that other couple later, they're like, Hey, we've, you know, remember when everybody was talking about Bob Smoot's photo, we were there that same day. Maybe we should check our footage. And that's that's how they unmask that it's actually. Uh, no, I, I do remember that. I'm talking about Bob Smoot noticing it for the in the in the first place. Yeah. Like, uh, what about like what 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 about that photo had him calling the paper and saying like, "Wow, you got to see this." Right. 
Yeah. Did, did they tell us? I'm, I'm backing it up. But, but it, I don't, remember, this I don't is, think so. It's a small town. Like, everybody's talking about this shit. Yeah, the, yeah this is that's, the third of April. That's kind of how I write it off. Right. It's months later. He looks at the photos. He sees uh, Bob Smeet. Smeet. Yes, Bob Smeet. And he's happy to look at the photos. But his wife apparently saw this in the background. And she made a big deal out of it, perhaps. She's been following the story assidu- assiduously for four months. I don't know. I don't have a huge problem with it. But anyway, June's takeaway is she's alive. She's still out there. Uh, and that means that the son becomes committed to this idea that they got to exhume the body. And Russell is with the knowledge that he'd seen. He has the knowledge of seeing this body and he knows she's not alive. This, uh, this is creepy. He knew she's not alive. Like once you look at your kid in that condition, you know, you know, they're not alive. But, but, but June had become convinced that her husband had made a mistake. And yeah, the corpse did not look like anybody anymore, which is also disturbing. And maybe Russell's starting to buy into it at this point. Like he has his own doubts about maybe he misidentified the body just because of the circumstances, which I also think is a human thing to understand, you know, to do like you're, you jump to conclusions. You think of the worst. I'm definitely that way. I just had an example of that where, oh yeah, I realized that I didn't have the post office receipt for a package I'd sent to my sister. And yes, I'd had two edibles and I was watching this movie, but then I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) and I was thinking, my God, that package is lost and I have no way to track it. And I texted my sister, did you get the package? She's like, oh yeah, I got it. And I'm like, oh, great. Okay. (laughs) But I'm just like going through my trash. Like, where's the post office receipt so I can uh, track this package? So, you know, you can jump to negative conclusions. That's all I'm saying. I love the idea that maybe this particular part of the movie sent you scrambling to like the garbage to to find a receipt. (laughs) It it really did. I had to hit pause. (laughs) Kim's, Kim's in bed listening to John dig through the trash. He's like, John, are you watching like Mongo? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, okay. Somebody had to bring this up eventually. They're called the Palmers. Now, this is one of the big talking points that people have. Palmer, Laura Palmer, uh, Twin Peaks. Now, two of the in- insightful things that I read actually drew a straight line to uh, Fire Walk With Me, which I had never seen. And so I actually put it on the other night. And I'm like, oh, you know, maybe this will give me some insight into... Lake Mungo, terrible fucking movie. I just no that movie. That oh. movie doesn't give you insight to anything. Good no. lord! I mean, I can get on David Lynch's wavelength absolutely. I mean, this just felt just so mannered and cheesy and dated, and it was just a piece of '90s schlock. It just did not work at all. Yeah, I've seen it a couple times at, at different points in my life, and it never, it, it just never resonated with me. I, that usually made me want to go to sleep. Oh, I, I didn't make it through. I, I mean, I was just getting to the the Laura Palmer stuff, and it did not, it did not feel analogous to Alice Palmer. So yeah, there. This is embarrassing, I have to say, that all of this leads to, very publicly, and we have more TV news, that, uh, oh, well, the family of this this dead girl 
has convinced the community, uh, the authorities, that they need to dig her corpse up to make sure it's really her. <laughs> so it's like the opposite of terrified. Yeah, exactly. And all they have to go on to motivate this decision is a grainy photo of a girl in the background at the dam. <laughs> that's that's the evidence. I think it's kind of a big deal, right? It's a lot to ask of your community to do this for you, isn't it? I think exhibiting a corpse is a is a pretty big deal. But I don't know. Again, in rural Australia, I get the feeling that they've got like a lot of heavy machinery and like a lot of free time and they're just looking for stuff to do. Yeah, well, well sure. We'll, we'll make sure it's really her. Absolutely. See, we had the, the funeral director uh, reappeared uh, there um, at the graveside. Yeah. Uh, also, our our, pol- our police officer who shows up throughout the course of the that's right the film. Close ups of paperwork. You can't get much more like PBS yes stock than close ups of government paperwork. And I, I find it interesting that they generally have the name of the field, but not the information in the field. Did, did you notice that? <laughs> Like, they don't actually tell you what you would want to see. They just like, oh, this is what you would put here on the floor. Yeah, it's just like cause of death, colon. Exactly. (laughs) I would have liked to see what the cause of death was. That's actually, I'm going to call that a criticism of this movie. (laughs) After after the shots of the body, I I was not concerned about the cause of death. I'm just saying, like, give us some actual information, not just a blank, a generic form. That is, if, if I may, uh, if I may dust off a quote from the coroner in Friday the 13th, part nine, in my professional opinion, this girl is dead as fuck. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, um, something interesting here that I think everyone doesn't really demand that much comment, but I mean, it's, it's painfully true. The guy's saying, Russell, the dad is saying, you know, I would love to find out that that was anyone else's kid but mine. I mean, it's a very candid thing to say, but, I mean, can you damn him for that? I don't think yeah. so. No, not at all. I, I also appreciate he has, like, a short list of, like, possibilities, like a runaway. <laughs> what is that? There's, there's, one, there's one out there that he has. I forget what it is. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Some fame-seeking teenager coming to the bright lights of Ararat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Falling with the wrong crowd again. Uh, now that sounds like another uh, David Lynch movie, actually. Mulholland Drive. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's enough Lake Mungo talk for now. We'll be back next time with the conclusion of this thorough postmortem. If you're still listening, it's safe to say that uh, you dig the pod. Why don't you give us a good rating and review on iTunes? We really appreciate it see you next time and until then do check those mirrors and screens around the house you never know what might be watching you Whoa!